the Charter of Rights and Freedoms, Nature, and the Right to a Healthy Environment. On one hand, we have a constitution which makes no reference to the environment, so there's clearly no explicit right to live in a healthy environment enjoyed by Canadians. But I would argue that Canadians do have a constitutional right to live in a healthy environment. An interview with David Boyd about environmental rights in Canada. I'm Sean Courage, and you're listening to episode 42 of Nature's Past, a podcast of the Network in Canadian History and Environment. Canadians value their natural environment. Nine out of ten worry about the impacts of environmental degradation on their health. Another nine out of ten are concerned about climate change. Eight out of ten Canadians believe that their country needs stricter environmental laws and regulations. And 95% of Canadians consider access to clean water a basic human right. So, do Canadians actually have a constitutional right to live in a healthy environment? According to David Boyd, the answer is no. But he explains why they should, in his new book, The Right to a Healthy Environment, Revitalizing Canada's Constitution. To learn more, I spoke with David. Sure. Well, my name is David Boyd, and I'm an adjunct professor in the Faculty of Environment at Simon Fraser University in Vancouver. David, thanks for joining us uh, and uh, coming to tell us a little bit more about your book, The Right to a Healthy Environment, Revitalizing Canada's Constitution from UBC Press. Um, why don't we start uh, by, first of all, uh, I want to ask you whether or not Canadians have a constitutional or any constitutional environmental rights. Well, Sean, that's a, that's a great question to kick off the interview, and I wish it had a simple answer, but it doesn't. Um, the, on one hand, we have a constitution which makes no reference to the environment, so there's clearly no explicit right to live in a healthy environment enjoyed by Canadians. But I would argue that Canadians do have a constitutional right to live in a healthy environment, and that that right is actually implicit in the words of Section 7 of the Charter, which refer to our life, liberty, and security of the person. Um, and so this, this is an implicit right to a healthy environment, and there's actually a court case going on in Ontario right now where two members of the Ombudsman First Nation are making this very argument. And it's an argument that's mm. been made successfully in 20 other countries around the world. So uh, the answer to your seemingly simple question is, uh, no, we don't have an explicit right to a healthy environment, but we may have uh, an implicit right to a healthy environment. And this might come as a surprise, I think, to uh, many Canadians. We might assume that as Canadians we have a right to uh, uh, air to breathe, uh, healthy water to drink, uh, access to food, but at least in the language of the Charter, that does not exist. No, you're absolutely right. And in fact, uh, the David Suzuki Foundation did a national public opinion poll last year asking Canadians a whole raft of questions about constitutional environmental rights. And what they found was that about 9 in 10 Canadians think they should have a constitutional right to clean air, clean water, and a healthy environment. And in fact, to your point, uh, over half of Canadians believed it was already in the Charter. Wow. Um, yeah. Can I ask a follow-up question on that that's maybe a bit more complex? Do, can, do Canadians have environmental rights within the common law, outside of the Charter? Ah, now, that is a really interesting question. And there's, uh, I mean, I guess what we're, what we're already discovering in the process of these first couple questions is that there generally are not black and white answers. So 
there's a long history of law dating back to Roman times um, where there are public rights to things like navigable waters, to beaches, to, um, to air and water. And I think from a Canadian perspective, it's also fundamental to say that uh, a, a cornerstone of Indigenous law, that is the law of First Nations in Canada, whether they're the mm-hmm. Haida on the West Coast, the Mi'kmaq on the East Coast, or the Anishinaabe in Central Canada, a cornerstone of Indigenous legal culture is uh, that the concept that the earth uh, and its myriad components have rights and that humans have responsibilities towards uh, those various uh, ecosystem elements. Uh, obviously, mm-hmm. Aboriginal people would put that in, in different language, but um, you know, Professor John Boros, who just moved back to the University of Victoria, has written a phenomenal book called Canada's Indigenous Constitution, where he talks about uh, the importance of these environmental rights and responsibilities to Indigenous legal systems. So we have a, a common law thread that suggests we have rights to air and water, and we also have this uh, Indigenous law thread as well. So from your perspective then, within the Constitution, the only possible place where you might see environmental rights would be the right to life and security. Right. And in, I believe it was in 2006 you were involved in an effort to um, uh, query the federal government on its perspective uh, as to whether or not uh, environmental rights were included in that part of the uh, Constitution. Can you talk a little bit about the response that you got back? Sure. Well, in Canada, uh, because of amendments to the Auditor General Act back in the 1990s, Canada created an office called the Commissioner for Environment and Sustainable Development. And one of the kind of interesting elements of that uh, position is that Canadians can submit what are called petitions, which are actually just um, letters asking questions Mm -hmm. about the government's position on any uh, environmental policy under the sun. And when I started learning about the extent to which the right to a healthy environment had been recognized in other countries, I thought it would be interesting to see whether Canada's government had a formal position on it. So I uh, sent in a petition asking whether the government of Canada recognized that its citizens had a right to live uh, in a healthy environment, to breathe clean air and uh, drink safe drinking water. And the response that I got back was fascinating on two levels. First, in terms of its formal response, the government didn't really answer the question. Uh, They talked about a whole bunch of laws and policies and programs that are intended to kind of protect our air and protect our water, but they dodged the question of whether there actually is uh, whether they actually recognize that Canadians have the right to live in a healthy environment. And I actually submitted a follow-up petition the following year uh, asking the Commissioner for Environment and Sustainable Development to force the government to answer the question, and they wrote back and said that's not really, that's not really the way the system is designed to work. Mm-hmm. But the other interesting part of that uh, experience was that I got several calls from people working in the Federal Department of Justice who said that that petition had tied the government in knots, uh, really caused them angst about what they were going to say. Hmm. And I guess that explains why they, uh, why they refused to really answer the question. And was this, was this the genesis of your book then? Uh, no, the genesis of my book, uh, my book on the right to a healthy environment in Canada, actually was uh, a result of research I had done on constitutions around the world, uh, under a um, Trudeau scholarship at the University of British Columbia from Mm. 2005 to 2010. And that was my um, PhD dissertation, was looking at the relationship between 
constitutions, human rights, and environmental protections around the world. Um, so the one of the nice things about this book is it really lays out the case for thinking about environmental rights and explaining why it is that um, Canadians might want a constitutional right uh, to live in a healthy environment. Can you explain a little bit about why you think Canadians need constitutional environmental rights? Sure. Well, there's really two fundamental reasons why Canadians need constitutional environmental rights as opposed to legislative rights or um, just kind of declarations of rights. And that's mm -hmm. a constitution functions on two levels. It functions on a legal level as the supreme legal framework of a country. So every other law and policy in Canada has to be consistent with our constitution. Um, so it's, it's the most powerful tool we have in our legal arsenal. And then perhaps even more importantly, constitutions have a really important cultural role in that they both respect, uh, or sorry, they reflect, and they also reshape the values of a country. So if you think of uh, the changes that have been wrought in Canada since the charter came into effect in 1982, we've seen a tremendous change in the level of respect, both legal and cultural, for things like Aboriginal rights, uh, for same-sex rights, mm -hmm. you know, both both in a legal sense, so that, you know, you've got the Supreme Court of Canada decisions on same-sex marriage, but I think more broadly, there's been an evolution of Canadian culture to be much more, uh, much more open-minded and much more respectful of these rights. Mm -hmm. And so that's the same kind of two-fold process that um, would be would result from constitutional recognition of a right to a healthy environment. You'd see the legal track, which would result in uh, dramatic strengthening of existing Canadian environmental laws, regulations, and standards, mm -hmm. and better enforcement of those standards. And you'd also see a cultural track, where I think um, the, the, the values that Canadians already express with respect to environmental protection would become uh, more deeply ingrained, and we would actually begin as a people to uh, walk the talk mm -hmm. well and it, it might be hard for um for people to remember uh, even now in the last uh seven or eight years canada's reputation internationally when it comes to environmental regulation um arguably has changed uh, but as you argue in the book, Canadians as citizens their values are still very strongly aligned uh, with environmental protection yeah absolutely right and you know going back Canadians this is a country that's huge, beautiful, has an incredible natural bounty. And that's really, I believe, and I think few people would disagree, that that's really at the heart of who we are as a, as, a, as a people. That's one of the fundamental common elements that brings us together. And, you know, if you go back to the um, late 1960s and early 1970s, there was two things that happened there that had an interesting conjunction. You had... Um, Pierre Trudeau being elected prime minister, and one of his top priorities was to repatriate or bring home Canada's constitution mm -hmm. and create a charter of rights. And at the same time, you had this emergence of the kind of modern environmental movement with people becoming increasingly concerned about um, pollution and uh, finite natural resources. And uh, one of the most fascinating parts of the research for this book on uh, constitutions and uh, the right to a healthy environment in Canada was delving back into the um, into the dusty volumes uh, in the basement of the University of British Columbia Corner Library 
to find out what Canadians were saying uh, at the time about what they wanted to see in their constitution. Because Prime Minister Trudeau had appointed a, a joint committee of composed of senators and uh, members of parliament, which traveled uh, across Canada holding public meetings mm-hmm. about what, what could and should be included in the new constitution. And I didn't really have any idea what I might find when I delved into those um, many dusty volumes. But what I, what I found was really... Uh, heartening in a way and surprising in another way. There were literally dozens and dozens and dozens of citizens who appeared at these public meetings and spoke very passionately and very eloquently about their connection to the the nature of Canada and their Mm -hmm. desires for the Constitution to reflect that close connection. And although it was a very novel concept at the time, you had people uh, across the country calling upon the government to include the right to a healthy environment in the Constitution in those meetings held in 1970 and 71. So this goes back right to the beginning of the repatriation efforts. Yeah, right to the beginning of the repatriation efforts under Pierre Trudeau. I mean, there had been previous repatriation efforts under Mm -hmm. other prime ministers, but Mm -hmm. um, this was the first time that the Canadian people had been given an opportunity to really um, speak out about what, what they believed our constitution should contain. And that's, that's actually quite surprising. I mean, um, the, the the those consultations were being conducted almost at the um, uh, the beginning of the modern environmental movement in North America, uh, and yet the right to a healthy environment was not included in Canada's uh, charter. W- why did the efforts fail? Well, that's you know that's an interesting question too, and I think that if, if can we just if we step back and say if those efforts had succeeded, Canada would have been at the forefront of an amazing global movement that's transpired over the last four decades um, to include environmental provisions in Constitution. So at that time, it was uh, almost unheard of to have environmental provisions in Constitutions. But today, uh, three-quarters of the countries in the world, over 150 countries, have environmental provisions in their Constitutions. And to my mind, that reflects a tremendous uh, evolution of human values and human consciousness just over the last four decades, which is a very hopeful and inspiring sign. Um, in Canada's case, uh, those, those public values did not end up being reflected in our Constitution or our Charter, and the reason for that was, um, was a whole bunch of complicated, uniquely Canadian reasons mm-hmm. about um, provincial, uh, provincial concerns about federal intrusion into natural resource management, um, the complicating que- question of Quebec, which... Um, which continues to vex Canadian constitutional law today, um, and and I and I think also just a, a, a the global trend or the go, the global um, economic problems that were encountered in the 1970s, mm-hmm. kind of uh, you know the concern public concern for the environment is like a roller coaster it goes up and down, and at that first stage in the late 1960s and early 1970s, we were the roller coaster in Canada was approaching the the crest, and public concern was very high. Hmm. Then we had the first OPEC oil crisis, um, the FLQ crisis politically in Quebec, and uh, environmental concerns kind of went down into the trough of the roller coaster, if you will. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it, this reminds me a lot of the the fate of the Endangered Species Act in the United States, which comes into effect in the early 1970s, really at a high point of environmental. Um, 
policy change uh, right. in the U.S., but by the end of the 1970s and the beginning of the Reagan administration really came under attack. Um, yeah, that's true of both the Endangered Species Act, also the Clean Air Act, also mm -hmm. the Clean Water Act. I mean, it's and it kind of goes up and down. And so it's interesting because just as just as the repatriation was uh, coming to conclusion in the early 1980s, the environmental concerns were just starting to uptick again. Mm. And so there was actually a really fascinating last-minute attempt, almost like a Hail Mary pass in a football game, where Sven Robinson, uh, who was a, you know, Canada's first openly gay uh, member of parliament, mm -hmm. was a member of a small parliamentary committee that was fine-tuning the Constitution. And in 1981, uh, Sven Robinson actually proposed an amendment it, it, within this committee to include the right to a healthy environment. Hmm. And one of my favorite um, passages in all of the uh, research that I did was the response from Jean Chrétien, who, of course, later became the prime minister, but at the time was the minister of justice. Mm -hmm. And Jean Chrétien accused Sven Robinson of wanting to put everything into the Constitution, including, uh, you know, his grandmother's recipe for pork and beans. And I just thought, you know, it was such a nonsensical response to a really fundamental proposal mm -hmm. uh, that it, it, it was kind of shocking to read. And at the time, I suppose, Gretchen uh, was trying to be funny, but, mm -hmm. uh, you know, we look back on that. And as a result, the committee voted uh, overwhelmingly. All of the progressive conservatives, all of the liberals voted against the NDP proposal. And so we're left with a constitution that's... Um, haunts us to this day with its silence on environmental protection. And you point out that in all of the um, sort of historical efforts to introduce a right to a healthy environment into the Constitution, um, it never became uh, an effort that was led by a major party leader or by a party, uh, a federal party in Canada. No, it's, it's one of those uh, kind of conundrums that it's never, although it enjoys broad public support, it's never really become a, a, a highly controversial issue in a way that would lead it to be um, mm -hmm. picked up by one of the major parties. And I guess my last question on this point about the, the failure to include it in the, in the repatriation of the Constitution and the creation of the Charter, um, in your opinion, how significant is that division of powers between the federal government and the provinces over natural resources in, um, in the, uh, uh, the right to a healthy environment in the Constitution and even in environmental policy uh, more generally? Well, it's, it's proven to be a huge problem in Canada, and, and it, it's held us back. I mean, it's held us back for over 100 years. And so, you know, there was uh, this, again, of interest to historians is the, the fact that Prime Minister Laurier back in uh, 1910 appointed a commission on conservation. Mm -hmm. And one of the first reports of Laurier's commission on conservation was a report on uh, the emerging problem uh, of water pollution. And one of the conclusions of the experts back in 1912 was that the way that Canada's constitution allocated responsibilities between the federal and provincial governments was really fundamentally undermining the country's ability to deal with this emerging pollution problem. And again, if you fast forward to the 1960s, you see uh, when environmental concerns were starting to gain greater prominence. You, say, you see Prime Minister Trudeau himself saying that Canada would never be able to adequately deal with these environmental problems unless we amend the Constitution to clarify uh, government's roles and responsibilities. So mm -hmm. um, this is a, it's, it's a fundamental problem that we've known about for over a century and which persists today.
it seems almost like um, very quite similar to problems over unemployment insurance in the 1930s that it was a provincial responsibility that provinces claimed uh, was too big for the provinces to handle, but the federal government wouldn't deal with because it was a provincial responsibility. Yeah, that's a good comparison. And I also like to make the comparison to other, I mean, Canada's not the only federal country in the world, mm -hmm. um, but we are one of the only federal countries where the, the federal government refuses to set national standards for environmental protection and then allow the provinces to meet those standards in, in whichever way the provinces see fit. Um, that would, to my mind, be a, an effective uh, way of dividing uh, the, the pie in Canada, but we've, we've never had a federal government willing to take that step. Well, let's talk a little bit about the international precedents. This, I think, is one of the more uh, perhaps surprising aspects of the book uh, for readers, um, that that more than 150 countries around the world include some kind of provision for a right to a healthy environment in their constitutions. Um, how, how, how does this work in other countries? What are the, some of the examples that Canada could draw from for thinking about a right to a healthy environment? Yeah, let me just clarify that, Sean, because it, it is confusing and it is surprising. So the, mm -hmm. as I mentioned earlier, there's uh, over 150 countries that have environmental protection provisions in their constitutions. Mm -hmm. um, uh, there's a subset of those 150 countries, which currently numbers 100, where the constitution explicitly in the section on human rights includes, uh, articulates the right to live in a healthy environment. And those 100 countries span the entire globe. So you have you know, major Western industrialized countries like uh, Finland, France, and Norway. You've got all of Central and Latin America where the recognition of the right to a healthy environment is almost uh, uniform. Many countries in Africa, a growing number of countries in Asia. So, uh, and this is, this is all transpired since the first countries did it in uh, Portugal, 1976, Spain, 1978. And what's really interesting about um, what's happened in these countries, and so you know, the first the book that came from my um, doctoral research called The Environmental Rights Revolution looked not only at the spread of these provisions, but at the impact they had on uh, environmental laws and legislation in these countries, the impact on uh, court decisions in these countries, in these 100 countries, and perhaps most importantly, the impact, uh, if any, on environmental performance, that is, the actual cleaning of air and cleaning of water, reducing of greenhouse gas emissions, etc. And what I found was that in, the, in an overwhelming majority of these countries where they'd passed these lofty constitutional provisions setting forth uh, citizens' right to live in a healthy environment, they had mm -hmm. subsequently taken those constitutional ideas and used them to push and enact stronger environmental laws to bolster their enforcement of those environmental laws, to enable greater public participation in environmental governments. Mm -hmm. And again, most importantly, countries with constitutional environmental rights and responsibilities, um, there's a very strong statistical correlation between those provisions of constitutions and smaller ecological footprints, uh, mm -hmm. better performance on international environmental rankings, uh, faster progress in reducing air pollution, reducing greenhouse gas emissions. So, you know, that's ultimately the bottom line. I mean, uh, as a person who is both an academic and also an activist, what really matters to me is, is changes on the ground, cleaner air, cleaner water, healthier ecosystems, healthier people. I don't want to, I don't want to spend years of my life advocating for a constitutional right to a healthy environment in Canada just to have those words on paper. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and so the, the most striking conclusion of the research that I did on these um, countries around the world is that these constitutional provisions do make a difference. They make a difference in law and they make a difference in life. So it's more than just words. Um, so what do you think the effects would be on Canada if Canada were to include environmental rights in its constitution? Well, the first thing that would happen is that governments at all levels in Canada, if there was a constitutional right to a healthy environment, they would have to review existing environmental laws in much the same way that governments in Canada had to undertake a comprehensive review of existing laws in 1982 mm-hmm. to ensure that they complied with the rights that are in the Charter. And, you know, this comes as a huge surprise to Canadians, but Canada lags behind all other industrialized countries in terms of the strength of our environmental laws. We have weaker standards for air. We have weaker standards for drinking water. We allow pesticides on our food at rates up to a thousand times uh, more than they allow in the European Union. We allow toxic substances, uh, again, at much higher levels than other industrialized countries. And so... um, all of these environmental laws would have to be strengthened if there was a constitutional right to a healthy environment. That would be the first significant step forward. Mm-hmm. And then there would be um, the other thing that is, has become clear from the experience of other countries is that when you have a constitutional right to a healthy environment, it gives citizens unprecedented power to hold governments accountable for actually doing the right thing to protect the environment. And you make the point that... Um that ability of citizens to challenge the government can prevent backsliding in uh, environmental policy? Yeah, and, you know, if you look at the last few years under the government of Prime Minister Stephen Harper, and it's happened in provinces as well, there's been a really uh, disturbing trend of environmental laws and regulations in Canada being weakened. So Mm -hmm. in 2012, you had these two omnibus, so-called omnibus bills, which were really budget implementation legislation, mm-hmm. which, where the government also stuck in uh, devastating cuts to the Fisheries Act, the Canadian Environmental Assessment Act, and other key pieces of Canadian environmental law. In mm-hmm. countries where citizens enjoy a constitutional right to a healthy environment, uh, a, a new legal doctrine called non-regression has emerged, which, in which courts have articulated the principle that if citizens have a right to a healthy environment, then current existing laws and regulations represent a baseline which can never be weakened, but mm. which can only be improved in the pursuit of a sustainable future. So those kinds of environmental rollbacks that we've seen in Canada would be unconstitutional if we had a constitutional right to a healthy environment. Right, and for years the Fisheries Act was one of the most um, powerful national pieces of environmental legislation for protecting fish habitat. Uh, which has now been modified um, to permit potentially higher levels of pollution in uh, streams and and lakes uh, and other uh, fish habitat. Yeah, that's right. And so that's just the kind of government action which, first of all, um, detracts from our efforts to achieve a sustainable future, and second of all, would be unconstitutional if if Canada recognized that um, its citizens had a right to a healthy environment. So this book, I think, goes a really long way to explaining the case and, and providing quite a, um, an impeachable case for the necessity for a right to a healthy environment. Um, but what do you see as the obstacles to achieving that constitutional uh, reform? 
well, I think the, the main obstacles are actually uh, cultural cultural myths, and there's two of those that I would point to. One is the the myth that Canada is a great green country, and that um, we're there. This is not. This is obviously something that you and I have uh, enough knowledge to know it isn't true. But it continues to vex us as kind of a uh, a myth of Canada that many people cling to that we are an environmental leader. And of course, you have governments that constantly repeat the refrain. And so that's mm-hmm. the first cultural myth we need to recognize uh, as a pile of studies as as high as um, as high as my house shows that Canada has fallen behind other wealthy nations in terms of protecting the environment. The second myth that we have to deal with is the myth that um, emerged from the, the failures, the constitutional failures of Meech Lake and Charlottetown, and that's the myth that we can't amend the Constitution. Mm-hmm. Um, many people, that's just kind of a knee-jerk reaction that people have to the suggestion we need to recognize a constitutional right to a healthy environment. In fact, since 1982, there have been 11 changes to the Constitution, including two changes to the Charter. Mm-hmm. Not huge, um, complex, solve-all-the-problems kind of uh, changes like the packages of Charlottetown and Meech Lake, but focused, narrow uh, changes. And so I think that a focused, narrow change that enjoys huge popular support, which well describes the right to healthy environment, is precisely the kind of constitutional change that is possible going forward. And so in your opinion, this is not uh, an impossible dream. Constitutional reform is not a third rail of Canadian politics. You see this as a possibility. Oh, I see it as a distinct possibility. I mean, I really can't imagine Canada continuing to go along with a constitution that really is a, it's a a 20th century constitution that doesn't meet 21st century challenges. And I also can't see Canadians continuing to go along with a foundational document that doesn't reflect their most uh, deep and cherished values of who we are as a people. And, And that goes back to what we were talking about earlier, about Canadians' connection with nature. And then the third myth that uh, is, stands to potentially impede um, recognition of a right to a healthy environment in Canada is a myth that's perpetrated by um, big business in Canada, and that is that recognizing a constitutional right to a healthy environment would somehow destroy the economy and cause great, uh, great loss of jobs, of capital flight, and, 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 and an end to investment. And that's simply a, a bogeyman argument. I mean, it's an argument that they made, uh, funnily enough, uh, three years ago when there was a, a piece of legislation before Parliament of Private Members bill called the Canadian Environmental Bill of Rights, which reached the uh, committee stage. And so there was um, representatives from the Canadian Association of Petroleum Producers, the Canadian Manufacturers Association, etc., saying that this piece of federal legislation was going to cause the loss of tens of thousands of jobs and shut down the oil sands and shut down Hydro-Quebec. Mm-hmm. And the experience, uh, you know, this is just simply fear-mongering. The experience of other countries uh, shows that instead of ending economic activity, it simply directs it in a more sustainable fashion. So the best example, the closest example in terms of a Canadian comparison is Norway, another northern mm-hmm. wealthy industrialized country with a major oil and gas industry. Well, so there's very many similarities between Norway and Canada, but there's several big differences. The first of which is that Norway recognizes in its constitution since 1992 environmental rights for citizens and responsibilities for government. 
and <clears throat> unlike Canada, Norway has very strong environmental laws. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, in the Conference Board of Canada's rankings, Norway for environmental performance, Norway ranks second out of 17. Canada's 15th out of 17. Norway has, uh, as I said, strong environmental laws. They've also had a carbon tax for over 20 years. And the net effect of these progressive policies has been lower emissions, stimulating in, uh, innovation and investment, and performance, both environmental and economic, that leaves Canada in the dust. So, you know, uh, Norway, not only in terms of environmental performance, ranks far above Canada, but Norway has taken revenue from the oil and gas industry and created a fund for the future, which today is worth almost $900 billion. Norway has no public debt. And compare that to Canada, where we have a national debt of over $600 billion. And you see that there's certainly no way that a constitutional right to a healthy environment is going to inflict the kind of economic damage that its detractors suggest. Well, I'll say that if listeners didn't know that Canadians do not have a constitutional right to a healthy environment, at least not an explicit one, and if they're not yet convinced by what you've said here on this episode, I would highly recommend that they pick up a copy of The Right to a Healthy Environment, Revitalizing Canada's Constitution from UBC Press. And David, I want to thank you for uh, sharing uh, with us a little bit uh, about your book and about your, your research. Well, it's been a pleasure, Sean. Thanks for having me on the show. Nature's Past is produced with support from the Network in Canadian History and Environment. This episode was made by David Boyd and me, Sean Karash. Music for Nature's Past was licensed by Creative Commons. For details on the artists, please take a look at our show notes page at niche-canada.org slash naturespast, where you can download episodes, subscribe to the podcast through iTunes, and leave us comments. Please let us know what you think about the podcast, and don't forget to rate and review this podcast on our iTunes page. You can also follow us on Twitter at twitter.com slash naturespast, and on YouTube at youtube.com slash naturespast. You can always get the latest information on events in the environmental history community from the Niche website at niche-canada.org, and you can find out more about the topics we discussed on this episode on our show notes page. Thanks for listening, and we'll be back again next month with another episode of Nature's Past.